Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. We're in Romans chapter... That's right. Romans 8. We've been here for a few weeks. We'll be here for a few weeks more. So grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you haven't been with us, something that we've been learning already, something that we've seen is the great difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's not morality, right? It's not ethics. I've found, and I know that you know this too, that there are people in this world who are actually far more moral than some people who are followers of Jesus. Some people who are not followers of Jesus may have a stronger ethic than some people who are followers of Jesus. So it's not morals, it's not ethics that's the distinguishing mark. Think about this. In the Bible, the Pharisees were incredibly moral people. They followed all of the laws. They were good at following the law, but they were outside the kingdom of God, outside the family of God. So it's not morals, it's not ethics that are the distinguishing marks of a Christian. That's not what makes us a Christian. And neither is it uh, intellectually ascribing to certain doctrinal positions or theological positions that makes us a Christian. Think about this. The demons in the Bible, we hear that the demons believe in God, and yet we know the demons are not a part of the kingdom of God. They're outside the family of God, right? In fact, when Jesus came onto the scene, there are several moments we see in the Gospels where Jesus comes into a place and there's someone with a, a, an evil spirit who is possessed. And it says that the demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. They intellectually ascribe to that doctrinal position, and yet we know the demons are outside the kingdom of God. They're not a part of the family of God. So it's possible to know all of the right things, and it's possible to do all of the right things and still not be a Christian. Do you see that? And so what is it? What is it that is the distinguishing mark? What is it that, that makes a Christian a Christian and separates a Christian from a non-Christian? What we've seen in Romans 8, it's been teaching us that it is the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within a person that makes a person a Christian, right? That's the evidence. That's the proof. That's the assurance of your salvation. Every Christian, somebody say every Christian, every Christian has living within them the full presence of God, the Holy Spirit. That's how you know if you are a Christian. Look at uh, Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is the distinguishing factor between a Christian and a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know that you are a temple? You are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God dwells where? Within you. If you're in Christ, the, the, the very spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity lives within you. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I'm reviewing, we've seen this stuff before. Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, he said, I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to send you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him. Why? Because he abides with you. He lives in you. So the Christian has the personal, active, experiential presence of God living within them all of the time. And I think Paul would actually say it this way. He'd say the entire Christian life is life in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we couldn't even begin the Christian life without the Holy Spirit's help. No one 
No one can even say Jesus is Lord and mean it except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we've learned the last three weeks is that it is the Holy Spirit. He enables us to experience the freedom that's bought for us in Christ, the no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can experience that only by the Spirit's help and by His presence in our life. We've learned that a relationship with the person the Holy Spirit, not some mystical force, not some feeling, not some vibe, but the person of the Holy Spirit is what causes transformation to happen in our life, causes us to begin to live and see in a way that more and more reflects Christ's likeness. And it is the Holy Spirit who leads us to put sin to death in our lives, the sin that we struggle with each and every day, thereby allowing us to begin to live in freedom and walk in life and in peace. It's, it's the Holy Spirit who does this stuff in us. That is what makes us Christians. And so, again, reviewing, we've talked about this. There are only two ways, really, of living in this world. There's living in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's living in the flesh. Are you with me? So there's, say it with me, in Christ, and then there's in the flesh. In the flesh. Those are the only two ways that a person may live in this world. And what we'll see today is that if you are a person who's living in Christ led by the Spirit, there's kind of two aspects, two aspects to be seen, two sides of a coin of that. There's activity, living in Christ by the Spirit. That's what we talked about last week. And then there's identity, living in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I told you this last week, the Holy Spirit leads you in a murderous war against indwelling sin in your life. Do you remember this? The Holy Spirit leads you in a murderous war against indwelling sin in your life so that it may be put to death and you may live. You may have a new capability, new ability to walk in life in peace, even in the midst of the struggles that you face in this life. But at the same time as he does that, he also gives you a personal, reassuring presence, a demonstration of God's fatherly love for you as an individual. And it's that second thing that I want to talk to you about today. Look at Romans chapter 8 and listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 14. It says, for all, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In other words, those who have the activity of living led by the Spirit do so only because they have the identity of being sons of God. Now, the word sons may stick out. It seems a little strange if you're not a male in the room. Ladies, I don't want you to think that this leaves anyone out. If, if you're here and don't see sons and daughters, I wish it said sons and daughters, except maybe there's a reason why Paul said sons. What could the reason be? Is there a word in the sentence that might tell us something about it, that might help us to see that this is for all genders? It's the word all, right? It says for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, that's a strange thing. Why would Paul say all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God? Well, Paul says this because in the world that he's writing into, sons received the full inheritance. Daughters didn't receive it. <laughs> you get that? Sons receive everything that belongs to the family. They have the privileges and the rights that belong to the household. The sons do. And so it is a very good thing that Paul doesn't say, ah, you know, those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God, because that would communicate a less powerful and potent message. He says, no, all, man, woman, boy, or girl, who are led by the Spirit of God, these receive the full inheritance, being fully chosen by God as His children. You have everything that belongs to the estate 
of God. And just in the same way that men are included when Paul writes about uh, the church being the bride of Christ, in this analogy, women are included. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who is led by the Spirit has the full inheritance of God for them. Bottom line, great news. If you have Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, better if the Holy Spirit has you. If he is leading you, if he is giving life to your mortal body, as we read about in verse 10 last week, you are a full heir of everything that is God's. You are a child of God. John 1.12 says, but as many as received Christ, to, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I want you to think about a comment uh, that J.I. Packer made. I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to look at it for a second. He said, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. And remember, we looked in week one at the beginning of Romans 8, and we had this word condemnation, which is a, it's a word that evokes a picture of court, of a, of a court case. There's a, a guilty verdict, there is a sentence being passed down, and there is condemnation to be had. To be right with God, the judge, to be on, on the level with him, to be okay with him, to get a no guilt, not guilty, no condemnation verdict is great. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. That's what Paul wants us to see here, that the greatest truth, maybe the greatest truth of the Christian life isn't simply no condemnation. Now I have a golden ticket to life, to heaven, right? I have a pass from my sin. Maybe the greatest news of the Christian life is that I have been adopted by God. I've been made his child. And the language of adoption is so important in this text. I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful for it because it unveils or it unlocks for us several reminders that we need in our life on a regular basis, on a daily basis about ourselves. We need to be reminded who we are as children of God if we're in Christ. And we need to be reminded of what God has in store for those who are his children. And we see that in this picture of adoption. And these are massive things that we need to be reminded of. First, who am I? This is the biggest question of your life. This is the biggest question that every human who's ever walked the face of this earth has wrestled with. And you will spend your entire life wrestling with clarity over who you are. And we talk about this a lot here because it's, it's incredibly important. Who you think you are will, will tell so much about what you do and, and how you live your life, how you act and react to whatever happens in the world, whatever happens on the news or, or at work or in your family, whatever you thought was going to happen but didn't happen. The way you view that and the way that you go through that will be defined by how you see yourself and who you believe yourself to be. Who you believe you are deep down has so much to do with the direction of your life. And I found this as a pastor over and over again. I've become completely convinced of this, that most of the problems that people face in their life, most of the struggles that we go through in our life, if you boil them down to their core, they have a lot to do with uncertainty about our identity. That there are things about us that we're unsure about or we're uncomfortable with or we don't really understand. There are holes, there are gaps where we feel exposed and we feel insecure and so we begin to reach or we begin to cover or we begin to accumulate or we begin to build in all of these ways in an attempt to shore up the foundation of me feeling good about who who I am. And if we're going to answer who we are, better than asking your boss and better than asking your friend and better even than asking your mom, who am I? 
It's good to ask God, who am I? God who has perfect sight, perfect insight, a perfect picture of who I am inside and out. And what does God say about who I am? Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, well, this is who you are, you're sons of the living God. Verse 15 says, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Being adopted by God means we have a new identity. Whoever we were, however we defined ourselves, whatever people said about us as we grew up, if they said you are your wins, or they said you are your losses, or they said you are an average of the two, those things all are pressed aside. If you're adopted by God, this is who you are. You are a child of the living God. And what Paul is doing is he's distinguishing two ways to, through which to see the same thing he's already said. He said there are people who live in Christ and people who live in the flesh. Now he says here's another way to think about it. There are those who are children of the living God who owns everything, who made everything, who is in control of everything. And then there are people who are just on their own, scrapping, trying to make it through this, this life. Not everyone has the privilege of being called a child of God. A lot of people claim the name, but not a lot of people, not the same number of people have really the right and the privilege to call themselves a child of God. And the word Christian gets thrown around and it means so many things now, and it doesn't necessarily mean I'm in Christ to the people in the culture around us. It may mean politics, or it may mean conservatism, or it may mean morals, or it may mean do-gooders or, or nice people. But only those who are in Christ and being led by the Spirit are truly children of God who bear His name. But it's not just about bearing a name. Listen to this. F.F. Bruce talks about this word adoption. He said it may smack somewhat artificially in our ears. And, and I don't know if it does for you or not. We're going to talk about that. In the first century A.D., an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate, and he was not a bit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature, and he might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. I don't know if it, 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 that makes a whole lot of sense to your story. If you, like me, grew up where pop culture told a very different story about adoption, this language of adoption may not mean a lot. If, if you grew up watching sitcoms in the 80s and movies in the 80s, the picture it painted that was that adoption is an embarrassing thing. It's a thing to be hidden. And if you told a child that they were adopted, that was a way that you could do damage to them. It had negative effects. It, it brought to light all of the insecurities that they might have about who they are, and they might feel like, yeah, I don't belong here. That is not at all how the gospel informs our picture of adoption. The word adoption literally means to place as a son, and Paul is writing into a Roman culture. He's writing to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, and adoption was a major part of Roman society, especially with wealthy and powerful and elite people. They would adopt not infant children, but often adult sons. I'll give you an example. Julius Caesar, ever heard of him? Good, you're listening at least. <laughs> Boo. Have you ever heard of Gaius Octavius? Ever heard of him? Eh, maybe. I bet you have, though, by another name. Have you ever heard of Caesar Augustus? Oh, we've heard of this guy, right? Because Luke 2.1 says, 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, right? And then Mary and Joseph moved towards Bethlehem so that they could be counted among the census. You've heard of Caesar Augustus. See, Julius Caesar adopted his nephew, Gaius Octavius, and he was renamed Augustus Caesar at his adoption. And you can imagine for a moment what an incredible life change that is to be adopted by the the emperor of Rome. All of Rome belongs to you. You think it, it happens. You want it, it's yours. And Paul, what he says is that's that's nothing. Imagine being adopted by the sovereign God of the universe who made everything and owns everything. He wrote the story and he knows the ending. This is the picture that he is painting of adoption. But I'm afraid, even that said, that that doesn't impress you much. (laughs) Or it doesn't impress you as much as it should. And it often hasn't impressed me nearly as much as it should. And even those of us who believe that it's fully true and we go, yeah, I get it, I'm an adopted child of God, we still don't spend a lot of time really pondering the privileges and the implications of being the adopted children of the living God. And I said privileges because we have privileges, not just a new name, not only do we bear the name of God and we are his representatives, but there are our privileges. Paul says we have a new experience, not just a new identity, but the second thing he says is we have a new experience as the adopted children of God. And this is answering not just the identity, who am I question, but now what does God have in store for those who are his children? Our adoption, two things. One, it, it changes our legal status. Our legal status. Listen to verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear. A lot of you know this. We adopted our two younger daughters. And when we did so, uh, Lindsay and I didn't get in a car, get in a plane, and just go someplace and take the children and bring them home and just say, mine now, right? We had to submit ourselves to a legal process in which thousands of pieces of paper were filled out by my wife's powerful hand and submitted, putting our entire life and every facet of our life under the microscope, like nothing is hidden before the social workers and the court-appointed advocates and the judge. Everything is splayed out to ensure that we met all the demands of our nation's laws so that we might then take these girls home and say they are mine. I am your father, and I am your mother, and you are my child. And in the same way, with our spiritual adoption, there is a legal thing that is taking place. You remember we looked at uh, the first week, Romans 8, 1 through 4, and what we found was that there is a, a situation every human finds himself in where God has a holy law. There is a holy law, and it's not just some mystical, you know, spiritual, churchy thing, but there is a law that God has written into creation and into humanity, and none of us are able to fulfill the law. None of us can keep it. Like, it's January 30th, and we're not even keeping our New Year's resolutions. You can't even keep your diet or your workout plan, so no way are we going to be able to keep the law of God. I don't have to convince you of that. So none of us are able to keep the law of God, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We in our flesh are not able to keep the law. That's why Romans 8, 3 says, the law, weak as it was in the flesh, me trying to do it, it was weak, it could not be done, so God did it by sending his son in the likeness 
of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us, Jesus steps in and begins to take the legal steps to meet the demands of the law so that we could be the adopted children of God. And he does so in two ways. He does so first by perfectly keeping the law. Jesus never broke the law of God. He's perfectly sinless. And so there's no condemnation on him because he is holy and perfect. And not only is there no condemnation on him because he did not break the law, but then Jesus took the sinless son of God, took the penalty for our sins so that we could receive the no condemnation verdict. And then, therefore, by the law being, de- uh, being met by Jesus, we could be the adopted children of God. Jesus did everything needed for us to be God's kids. But adoption doesn't stop with the legal steps. Like my relationship with my younger daughters didn't stop when the paperwork was signed and the judge hit the gavel on the table and they had a status update, you know, in their life. That's when the the relationship becomes really beautiful and messy and beautiful and complicated and wonderful. That's life. And in the same way, Paul says, not only is there a status change in our legal standing before God, but there's a change in our spirit when God adopts us. There's a change in our our center and the core of who we are. Verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit testifies Himself with our spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God, gives testimony, gives witness to the center of who we are all day long and again and again that we are children of God. He's repeating it. He's he's within our heart saying, remember, you are a child of God. He's giving testimony to our spirit. You are a child of God. He points out to us, Paul, here that we don't just have an exterior objective, legal adoption, but we have an interior, spiritual, and emotional adoption that's not just something to be believed, but it's something to be experienced. Verse 15, he replaces the the feelings that we have, that that one might have like a slave to a master, like I'm just this itty-bitty, insignificant human being that I know all of my weaknesses and all of my ugliness, and when I really consider what's going on in my life and that there really is a God, I just feel like nothing, and I might feel crushed under the weight of that. But he says he takes that away and he replaces it with the feeling of a child toward a loving and caring and attentive parent. That's where we get the language, Abba, Father. No longer do I go, oh God, may I, would you just, would you have mercy on me for just a moment? No, now I go, Dad, I need you. Father, you are there for me. Verse 16, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit or our emotional center. Yes, God loves me. Of this, I am sure. There is no doubt. Look what he has done to bring me home and make me his son or daughter. You, in Christ, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, are meant to experience the personal assurance of God's love for you as an individual. You're meant to experience that. It's a personal touch from God at the the very center, at the very core of who you are. And because of that now, I can call on Him and I can know that He hears me. I I don't pray openly to the air hoping that somehow it may land somewhere. I speak to the Father who loves me. 
Hebrews 4, uh, 4, 4, 16 tells us this. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, right? That I don't grovel, that I don't beg, that I don't plead, that I don't go and try to clean myself up and make myself better so I can present myself in my finest clothes trying to hide what really is going on in my life and maybe I might squeak through and God might hear from me. No, because he has, he has bought me with a price, because he has adopted me, because I am his child, I am welcomed, welcomed at any time to come in to the throne room of grace and, and, and find help in the time of need. It's the confirmation of an intimate relationship that's given to us in Christ that we have because God's legally adopted us to be his children. Not only is he our maker, but he's now our, our father. And as adopted children, we're meant to understand this. We have a new identity and we should have a new experience with God and a new experience as we face things in this life, knowing that our dad is God. And verse 17 says that it's not just about here and now, but we also have a new destiny. We have a new destiny. Look at verse 17. And if children, that's the now, heirs also, well, that's the future, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And there's a lot of happy adoption talk happening, and now there's something that begins to grind in our spirit a little bit, something we need to focus on. Verse 17, first he says that because God has changed our identity, that's the already, we should expect an inheritance. That's the not yet, but there's more to come. And that's great. I'm an heir of God. Everything belongs to him. I get everything that is his. I get to delight in it. I get to enjoy it. That's great. But here's the concerning part. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now that makes you wonder, doesn't it? That makes you pause for a second. You go, whoa, 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 Paul. This was really beautiful, and now you're saying something. I'm not quite sure. What do you mean here? What's your intent? If we indeed suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him, what does this mean? Well, I think that this means if you truly are God's family, if you truly are God's children, if he is your dad and Jesus is your brother, then you will begin to take on the family characteristics you will begin to look and think and sound more like dad and more like brother Jesus. You will reflect him more and more. And so as long as you live in the brokenness of this world, until you die or until Jesus returns and makes all things new, there will be a shared experience with him, not only of glory, but also of suffering. For the father suffered. He suffered the rejection of those he made. The father suffered to send his son into the broken world. The son suffered. Even who for the joy set before him endured the cross, he endured the cross. And so as long as we live in the broken world, we'll share a bit of that experience too. First John 3 helps us with this. It says, Beloved, now we know that we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be, not fully. We don't fully look like Jesus yet. We don't have fully glorified and renewed bodies. We don't have fully purified minds that understand everything rightly, not yet. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We'll be like that because we will see him just as he is. But right now, we're becoming like him. And as we're becoming like him, not yet fully resembling him, but becoming like him, what do we do until he returns? What do we do when we're still stuck in the brokenness 
of this world, will we're to be like him, not just in glory, but also in suffering. Look at verse 16 here. It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You get a picture of it. The redeemed life that you've been given in Christ will be a buoy in the ocean of brokenness in other people's lives. It will be a word of promise. It will be a witness. It will be a light in the dark for those children of God who are now your brothers and sisters. And you are to lay down your life for them. You are to count them as more important than yourself. Jesus first, others second, and and then yourself. That was joy for you kids. Jesus, others, and then yourself. It's what 1 John 3 says, that we ought to lay down our life for our brethren. That should cost us something. I'll say this carefully. Don't, Don't mistake what I'm saying here. If it doesn't cost you something, if, it's not, if you're not sharing in the suffering, you may not be fully engaging what God has for you right now. And by no means do I mean that we should be chasing pain, but I mean if we are in Christ and we are becoming like him, Paul declares that we'll be like him in glory and in suffering, and that we're to lay down our, our lives for others. That should cost us something. Now, you can see there's tension in this, Right? There's tension in the glory and the suffering. Those things don't, don't feel like they should travel together. There's, there's tension in the forgiven, no condemnation, yet struggling. There's tension in our life when we're trying to orient our life in a Godward way. There's tension in our life when we're really trying to do the things that God has called us to do, when we're really trying to love others. There's tension there. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always joyful. Some of you may remember a few years ago, before Jessica came home to us, that Lindsay, just a month before we got the call about her, Lindsay and I traveled to South Carolina to bring home a son. I have four daughters. We didn't bring home a son. He had a name, and we have pictures of him, and it's 2022, and so I... Unfortunately, I'm addicted to keeping up and knowing what's going on in his life, but I I get to continue to pray for him. When we got to South Carolina and we were headed to the hospital to bring home my boy, uh, his biological mother decided to raise him, which is a wonderful thing. It's the way God designed things to be. But it left me very confused and brokenhearted. Lindsay and I were just trying to follow the Lord. We had opened our hearts. We had laid ourselves out there. We, you know, we were taking a leap that we weren't fully understanding or prepared for, and, and we get there and it doesn't happen. And we got in, in a rental car, and we, I mean, we had arrived at 2 in the morning, and we're finding out at, it's, you know, 7 in the morning, this isn't happening. So we get in a rental car, and we drive 20 hours home back to Dallas to face our children and tell them you don't have a brother. And, and you've experienced different things, but things like this, where you, didn't, you don't know how your heart can love in, in such a way. There's something that's happened, there's a bond that's been created, and it, it's unreasonable. I don't know how I loved a little boy that I never held. It was never really mine, but I did. And we couldn't see straight, and we had to pull over on the side of the road at times just to catch our breath and to to wipe away the tears because there's brokenness. And there's a moment in the brokenness, there's a moment in the suffering and the tension that we live in in this world when we're seeking to live with a Godward life and yet everything else seems to be going the other way at times. There's a tension where at moments we go, okay, if this is what it's going to be like, I'm done. 
I'm not putting myself out there again. I'm not going to go through that again. But had we done that, we wouldn't know the further delight and the further joy and the further satisfaction, the further complication and the frustration and the greater delight of continuing to see our family grow, not only through Jessica coming home, but surprised through Kate then coming home too. We live in this tension, and it costs us something. It's a glory and a suffering that's being made in us as we're being made like Christ. I found comfort in the words from Kelly Nikendia. She wrote this, belonging isn't easy or guaranteed. There are a hundred ways it can go wrong, but there are as many ways it can go right. As strangers are transformed into relatives, family formation is always a risk, but it's a worthy one. And that's why we wrestle and we contend for the blessings as Jacob did in Genesis, to know the sacrament of belonging. And some of you don't know the word sacrament, it just means a horizontal picture of a vertical reality. Right? And in the same way that us becoming God's children included brokenness, included suffering, included pain. That's the same experience we're going to have in this life as we continue to live as God's children and His family in the world, welcoming more children into the family. And it will always be this way. When you take your brokenness and my brokenness and other people's brokenness and you smash them all together, all of that baggage and all of that life, it's sure to be a mess. But with God as our Father, it can be a beautiful, powerful mess and one worth living. And this is what Paul says. He, he says it in the same way in verse 18. He said, I consider, and that word means that I have thought it out carefully. I'm not shooting from the hip here. I'm not giving you platitudes and cliches because I don't know what else to say in the moment. I've laid out all of the evidence and it's before me and I have deemed that this is true. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or in other words, family formation. It's always a risk, but it's a worthy one. And whatever may come, the act of love which welcomed me into God's family, which orients me, which sustains me, which gives to me and continues providing for me and promises the best is yet to come is the thing that steadies me when I feel the ground shaking beneath my feet. It is the thing that orients me when I'm told to go into the world and to love others with the love of Christ and to be like Christ to those who God has placed in my life and to live like God's family, to live like God's son, to take on not just his name but his character, his heart, and his purpose with my days. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I laid down my life for others' sake, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Someone said, you may have heard this before, we can compare a thimble full of water, right? We can compare that to the ocean, and we can have a relative comparison, but there is no way to compare our suffering with the coming glory. Too great a chasm. There's no way to line those two things up. 
Another day, another time, another series, maybe we can dive into what that future glory may look like. I want to give you three passages to look at this week to kind of begin to scratch the surface of it. I'm going to put these on the screen and you can look them up. Revelation 21, you should go read that this week. Begin to ponder on what life will be like, the future glory. Philippians 3, 21 and 1 Corinthians 15. We learn several things here. We learn that there will be an absolute renewal of the earth, not just spiritual language, new heavens, new earth. It's not just spiritualized talk. It's a physical reality in which we get glorified bodies stripped from all sickness, all pain, all suffering, all weakness, not just spiritual language that you hear at church, actual physical realities promised to God's children here in the Bible. C.S. Lewis said, nature is mortal and we will outlive her. (laughs) You like that? Nature is mortal and we shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of you who are in Christ will still be alive with him. Infinite joy is offered to us and we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer. Our best effort (laughs) to try to imagine and describe that glory would always fall short. It's like the challenge of the passage. Paul's like in verse 18, go ahead. I mean, try try to come up with a picture. It will never even come close to what God has in store for his children. But right now what we do is we live in the tension between what is and what will be, the already and not yet. We live in the tension between I have been brought out of darkness into light, praise God, and I get up every day and I fight indwelling sin in my life. We give thanks for the incredible blessings that God has showered out on his people and the everyday graces we experience and yet we cry out against the chaos and the injustice and the disorder and the brokenness of the world. We know that all things work together for our good. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks here in Romans 8. But we really struggle to understand that good when life is hard and nothing's going our way. It's living in the tension. It's called that in-between times and I'm going to leave it kind of on a cliffhanger because starting next week Paul shifts his posture he kind of if he's been professor Paul for these last few weeks he'll be pastor Paul and he will begin to speak into our our anxiety he'll begin to speak into how we live in paradox already not yet and we'll see that for several weeks how do we live in the time between the times or like Hebrews says the assurance of things hoped for in the future but the conviction of things not yet seen in our life what we'll do over the next few weeks, but I want you just to to take this home today. These five verses, they paint a picture of us being the adopted children of God, and they do so to remind us that when we struggle to, to know who we are and be okay with who we are when we look in the mirror, when we haven't achieved what we thought we would achieve, when people have said, this is all you'll ever amount to, when we've said, this is all there is for me, if you've been an adopted child of God, you have a new identity comes with a new experience. Oh, and it comes with a new destiny. And that's something that I can't convince you of the power and beauty of that. But you should go to God and ask him to help you to believe. If you are in Christ, if you are led by the Spirit, you are a child of God. Knowing this sustains us when life is tough. Knowing this is what compels me, drives me forward to, to 
every day get up and try to live like Christ to to be a little more gentle, to be a little more caring, to be a little more self-sacrificial, to be a little more loving, to live with with infinite purpose and and beauty in my life, being someone who pours life into others instead of stealing life from those around me. And remembering these things gives me something to rest on. What's true of me in Christ until the day when faith becomes sight fully. I want to I leave a, an idea in your head as we go this morning. I'm going to put a, it's a long quote. I'm going to put it on the screen, and it's going to go in three slides. And I'm going to go away and give you just a moment to ponder this concept from J.I. Packer. And so let me pray, and then I'm going to leave you with this thought. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, help us to understand what sounds like church speak, church cliches, when we say words like Father God, that they are powerful declarations of identity meant to steady us, to give us life to our mortal bodies, meant to lead us in life and peace, meant to give us hope, meant to give us purpose, and meant as a weapon against the enemy. And so this morning, I pray as your church that we would come under our Father's teaching. And that we would hear you speak to us, so Holy Spirit, speak to each person in this room. Speak into who they are. Speak into how they are loved. Give them personal assurance that God is for them. And if God is for them, none can be against them. In Jesus' name, amen.